Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone. So this morning we close out our Sovereign Sermon Series. Uh, So in one fell swoop, we have to finish the story of Joseph. Therefore, Kurt had to read the longest scripture passage known to mankind today. So apologies to those of you who fell asleep. Apologies to Kurt. Luckily, there were no funny names, so we we were good on that front. But uh, we got to close out the story of Joseph this week because next week we start Christmas, right? Yay! It is officially Thanksgiving is over. Thanksgiving is past, so I officially begin celebrating Christmas. Um, I don't mean to call anyone out, but if you celebrate Christmas before Thanksgiving is over, you are wrong. So, uh, just saying. So, next week we start uh, our Christmas sermon series. I am very, very excited about our Christmas sermon series. Uh, The entire sermon series is going to uh, really be something that God has laid on my heart for a long time. Uh, it is, we're going to look at Jesus and how completely countercultural Jesus was. Uh, and really, Christmas kicks that off. Uh, the sermon series is called What Kind of King? And it's looking at all of the ways the world says a king should look and all of the ways that Jesus completely defied how a worldly king should look. And so I'm very excited about this Christmas sermon series. I'm excited about all our sermon series. Um, but I would highly encourage you to invite somebody to join you this Christmas. Look, I know what all of the studies say. You know, Barna does all of their studies and everything and says that it's not popular to invite people to church anymore, that, you know, the best way to do it is to bring them into a home group first and then into a church. I'm, I am aware of those studies, and I say hogwash, if that's still a thing that people say. I don't buy it. I just don't buy it because all of you know someone and if you have built up a relationship with that person and you tell that person, man, you should come to church with me this Christmas, I promise you they are going to think about it. Unless that person really hates you, uh, they're at least going to entertain the idea, right? I just don't buy. I think some of those Barna studies, I don't, I'm not going to get into the spiritual warfare and everything. I'm sure George Barna is a great person and his institute's wonderful. Um, I'm not digging this towards them at all, but I think a lot of those Barna studies cause us to shrink back and to become less bold in inviting people to join us on our walk with Jesus. And, and that's the exact opposite of what we should be doing. So invite somebody to join you. Uh, bring somebody to church. Uh, we are going to be introducing a Jesus that isn't taught about a lot in the church these days. And, and that's the Jesus that people need. I think when a lot of people say that, you know, oh, well, I, I just don't really like church. I don't think it's that they don't like church. I think it's that they don't like the world's way of doing church. And we need to show them a different way. That's why we're here, right? To show people that there is a different way to do church God's way. 
that we can be a family and not just a gathering, that we can be a living movement by the Holy Spirit, not just a business set forth to make money. That's not why we're here, and we can show people a better way. So, invite somebody to join you for Christmas. Before we get there, though, we got to finish this week, right? And I am, as excited as I am about Christmas, I am equally as excited about this message. Uh, I've told you guys this before, um, but lots of times uh, when I'm writing a sermon, I have an idea in my mind of where the sermon's going to go. So I map, believe it or not, yes, I do map all of this stuff out. It goes together. It's like a puzzle, you know. I do plan before I get into these things. I don't just go off the cuff. But when I'm doing this, I have an idea of, of, of how things go together. And my favorite sermons are always the ones where God pulls something out at the last minute and I've got to go in a complete different direction. It's like I can go Jeremy's way and do the sermon the way I wanted to do it, or I can go God's way and do the sermon the way that God wants it to be done. And I love those because when I get those, it tells me, okay, good, <laughs> This isn't my doing. This is, this is Jesus here. And he pulled a left hook on me with this sermon today, and I'm really excited about what God has to say. God is in complete control. That's what this entire sermon series has been about. God is sovereign. God's sovereignty says that he is the ultimate authority. God's sovereignty really says to Christians, he is the only one worthy of ultimate allegiance. That doesn't mean that we don't respect our authorities that those put in place because God's sovereignty says, even if you disagree with the politics of the authorities over you, in God's sovereignty, he has placed those people. In our Bible in a Year plan, we're actually in Romans right now, and our reading, I think, was it today or yesterday? I can't remember. One of the days, our readings was, was said exactly that. God has put the people who are over you in the government over you. They didn't, Joe Biden didn't get voted in on accident. I know that's what a lot of us think, right? Oh, it was, it was, the election was rigged and all this stuff. If the election was rigged, then that was God's plan. Hmm, that hits hard, huh? Well, no, no, ah. If God is completely sovereign, then everything that happens is according to his plan. That makes us bristle, Right? But it also provides us with so much peace. We have so much peace in resting in this. God's got this, right? You guys need to say that. God's got this. <laughs> Elam's on board. God's got this. Yes, even in the chaos. Yes, even in this absolute storm that you are walking through right now. God is in control. He has never let up control for a moment. And Joseph is our poster boy for this, right? Because he just keeps going through the ringer over and over again. When you think his life can't possibly get any worse, he continues to go through it. The junk that he walks through, all of this is evidence that God has an absolutely perfect plan even when it feels like the world is spinning out of control, even when it feels like the bad guys are winning again and again and again. That was for all of you Ohio State fans out there this morning. God is in control. And we see this so clearly in the life of Joseph. We see the sovereign point. 
And that really is the question of it all, and it's the perfect ending to this sermon series. What is the point of sovereignty? What's the point of all of this? What's the point of God being in complete control and trusting in God's perfect plan? And here's the thing. We've talked about this in the past couple sermon series, and again, it keeps resurfacing. If it keeps resurfacing, that means it's something that we've got to pay attention to, right? It's something the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. And so we've got to pay attention to us. But here's the thing. We've talked about this with anchors. We've talked about this with storms, with facing the wrong storm, with clinging to the wrong anchors. The same goes with the point of sovereignty. Because we can miss the point of sovereignty, the point of God's sovereignty. And we do it a lot in the Western church today. And the problem is, in this story of Joseph, Joseph makes it to second in command in all of Egypt. The point of God's sovereignty was to take Joseph's suffering and to turn them to worldly success. False. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not the point of God's sovereignty. That is a sick perversion of God's sovereignty. There are a lot of churches. They'll never tell you outright that they're prosperity gospel churches, but that's prosperity gospel, y'all. That's what that says. We'll keep suffering through these things and God's going to bless you and open fruitful doors and you'll be more abundant. That's not what the Bible says. There is a point to God's sovereignty. But the point to God's sovereignty is beyond this world. And to dumb God's sovereignty down, to dumb the purpose of God's perfect plan down to something that this world can contain, that's, that's a perversion of the gospel, y'all and we've got to throw it out. We've got to run from that teaching, that false doctrine, that bad theology. The problem is, those attacks of the enemy, they make it easy to believe, don't they? They make you want to believe it. Because let's be honest, we don't want to walk through tough stuff, right? We want the blessing. We want the good stuff. We want fruitful and bountiful and King Solomon's temple, right? But that's not the point of God's sovereignty. So, how do we get there? Here's how Joseph got there. So here's how we'll get there. We've got, first up, sovereign recognition. We've got Joseph living the sovereign life. And finally, the purpose of it all, the sovereign point. So let's get started. First, sovereign recognition. Who is sovereign? Who, this is a, this is a tricky one. Who is in control of your life? Because we all know the Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. Jesus is in complete control of my life. Is he now? Right? Because we can say things when we're sitting in church on a Sunday morning. Oh, Jesus has complete control of my life. But when we're sitting alone in the darkness on a Thursday evening, and nobody else is watching, who's in control of your life, right? When somebody wrongs you, and you have an opportunity to pay back evil with evil, who's in control of your life? Do you consult with Jesus before you pay back? God, do you want me to do this? Yeah, he does. He wants me to do it, right? Because we all know that God is in control. Supposed to be. But when that worldly urge comes in for us to grab, 
it's so hard not to grab, isn't it? When we're driving in the car and we don't like the road that Jesus is angling us down, so we want to grab the steering wheel and get back on the highway where it's easy. You know, we can set the cruise control and all the drivers, they're passing in the left lane and not just riding in the left lane because it's the easy highway. That's how you're supposed to drive. It's a side teaching this morning. Who did Joseph recognize as sovereign in his life? Was it himself or was it God? This is one of the most powerful moments in the story of Joseph, and we miss it every time because we focus on the wrong things. Kurt just read it to us. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it, and I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. You guys get the, the, the enormity of this? Pharaoh holds the keys in, in the world. Pharaoh holds the keys to this prison. Joseph has been wrongly accused. He's been sold into slavery by his brothers. He has been jailed. He has been, I mean, you name it, Joseph has been it, right? All the bad stuff. And now here stands a man who holds the keys to this prison, who can get him out. And he lobs him up this softball, right? It's like when your boss comes in and says, hey, I saw those reports that you did. Man, gold star. And you're thinking, actually, that was Chris that did the reports, but I'm not going to say anything. Here's the promotion, right? Joseph has the opportunity here to say, I mean, I'll be honest with you. If this is Jeremy, Jeremy's saying, yep, that was me. I can do it. Yep, go ahead. Tell me the dream. I'll do it, Pharaoh. Whatever you need. I'll be your dream interpreter for the rest of your life. Call me in any time you have a dream and I'll interpret it. Just get me out of jail. But Joseph doesn't, does he? Joseph recognizes who is really sovereign. You guys have any idea how difficult this is? Some of you probably do know how difficult this is because you've done it. But Joseph recognizes Pharaoh does not hold the keys to this jail. Pharaoh is not in charge of getting me out of this situation. In fact, I could interpret this dream perfectly for Pharaoh, and he'll send me right back into this prison if that's God's will. Because God is the one who is sovereign. Joseph knows who really holds the power. We talked about this in the first uh, two weeks. We, talked, we had these two foundational verses, right? Genesis 50 and then uh, Romans 8. We talked about these foundational verses of sovereignty. But we see this again come up at the end of Joseph's story when his, his brothers come back to him. And, you know, their father's about to die, and so, you know, his, his brothers are worried that Joseph, now that the father's dead, is going to take revenge, and now is the time that Joseph's going to get us. So they come to him and say, well, before dad passed, you have to know, he said, he demanded that you forgive us. And it was a lie, he didn't say that to Joseph. But Joseph responds and says, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. We see this over and over again in Joseph's life. It isn't just with Pharaoh, right? 
but it is a posture that Joseph continually takes over and over again the opportunity presents itself and ladies and gentlemen if you don't see this opportunity in your own life there is always an opportunity presented to you to sit in God's chair always it may not look like Joseph's where it's clear-cut but there is always an opportunity in your life to grab that steering wheel to say I am charting my course this is mine my life right Come on, secular humanist. That's the culture we're in right now that says, me, 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 me. And it's all mine. And ladies and gentlemen, you have to fight it. Because everything in this world right now is pulling you to go that way. Everything in this world right now is teaching self-care, self-love, self, 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 self. Let go of the wheel. Let God, don't sit in his chair. And over and over again in Joseph's life, we see an absolute refusal to take God's place when it comes to who is in charge of his life. In fact, because Joseph refuses to try to take control, in the bad times, guess what that gives him? It gives him God's trust that Joseph's not going to grab control in the good times, right? It's because all through these trials, Joseph doesn't grab for control. He doesn't say, I'm getting myself out of this. Then God says, this is my man. This is someone that I can trust to raise up, to give. You know, we look at that story of Job, right? Some of us are familiar with the story of Job. Job loses everything. And then at the end of the story, he gets double back what he had lost. And the prosperity gospel teaches, lose everything, and you're going to get double back. That's not what that story teaches. What that story teaches is that Joseph, or I'm sorry, Joseph, Job worshipped God when he lost everything. So God can trust that he will worship him when he gets double back. Right? The same with Joseph. Joseph trusts God unwavering through the bad times. So God knows Joseph is not going to try to steal his glory when the good comes. He can trust Joseph. Joseph passes off this glory marvelously, takes absolutely no credit for this dream interpreting, gives all recognition and all glory to God in front of Pharaoh in front of his brothers, in front of the chief cupbearer who forgot him, in front of Potiphar, in front of Potiphar's wife, never tries to take the glory, but gives it all to God. And it's not a moment. It's not after a Sunday morning and he's just been inspired by a good sermon, right? It's all of life. Every moment of Joseph's life. Joseph trusts God, and that's what it means to live the sovereign life. It's kind of like the book, The Blessed Life, right? But this is the sovereign life. This will be my book that I write that'll go on the New York Times bestseller, except I don't think it will because it's not going to be that popular. Because nobody wants to hear about this, right? 
Everybody wants to hear about how God has nothing in store except for blessing and blessing and blessing and free cars and airplanes and jets and all that stuff. Nobody wants to hear that when you are walking through junk that God's got a plan and that it might never turn around. But that's God's plan for you. And so you walk it without wavering. Because when this life is over, then you get the good stuff. But we want the here and now, don't we? There is a blessing. A very real blessing. But it is not a worldly blessing. But God's real blessing comes for us in eternity. And what do we get? Not heaven, right? We don't suffer for heaven. We suffer for God. Lots of times we'll miss that, right? Now, yes, we want to get to heaven, but we don't want to get to heaven just because it's nice there. It's like Florida all year long, right? No rain, it's just heaven. No, we want to get there because that's where God is, right? We don't suffer for heaven. We suffer for God. We do all of this for God. We walk his plan for God to get God. And when we trust in this sovereignty, when we live out this sovereign plan, constantly walking in obedience with God, constantly walking in the Spirit, there is peace, such deep peace. There is hope. It is endless hope. And there is joy. There is joy that nothing, no amount of suffering or trials or anything in this world could possibly take away because our anchor holds within the veil. Our anchor holds with Jesus Christ, and that anchor is not moving. It is anchored and rooted in a life that completely rests and trusts in a God who will never fail. Jana said it this morning during worship. God, I mean, guys, God has never missed. Not once. You know, we've, we've got all these people putting their hope in, you know, Ohio State to beat Michigan because they beat them, you know, what, 90 times out of the past 92. Whatever it is, Jesus has literally never missed. But we refuse to trust. We think that, I, I, you know, for some reason, Satan twists it, and I think, yeah, Jesus has never missed, but he's going to miss for me. He's going to, when, when it's my turn to put all of my trust in him, when it's my turn to jump and expect that he's going to catch me, he's going to forget. Never in the history of this world has God missed. He's not going to start with you. He promises you that. You can trust him because he is perfect. And because God is perfect, his plan is perfect. It might not make sense to you right now, but you can trust that your perfect God has a perfect plan. His word promises us, right? We know that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, don't twist it. it isn't, this isn't talking about worldly good stuff. This doesn't say, you know, you're going to walk through crap now, but just wait a couple months and it's all going to turn around, right? Where God closes one door, he opens a bigger and better door. False. Not always. Unless that door is a door to eternity. We don't like that because you have to die to get eternity. 
right? Pentecostal churches don't like that. God will always heal. God will always, eh? Eh? This is, this, uh, I've resorted to this quote often, but it's the Keller quote. God will sometimes heal us from death, but God will always heal us through death. You will be healed perfectly. We don't always like how that looks because sometimes it takes getting to the other side of eternity to experience that. But if that's God's perfect plan, then let it be his perfect plan. Walk in it because that's your good promise not here on this earth. Joseph walked in God's sovereignty. Even when he rose to the top of the ladder in Egypt, he still walked in God's sovereignty. This is where the story actually gets a little twisty. If you are familiar with the story of Joseph, you know that here, when Joseph gets to the top, after what was our scripture reading today, it gets kind of loopy. We, we, there's a lot more chapters that we go through, and all the chapters are really weird. Because what happens is, Joseph gets to the top of the social ladder, and this famine strikes. They've got enough food in Egypt for all of Egypt and the surrounding areas, and guess who gets hungry? Joseph's brothers. So they come back to Egypt, and the next couple of chapters in Genesis send us through this absolute rigmarole of Joseph sending his brothers back, but hiding cups in their bags, and, oh, they stole from us, we're keeping this brother, and just, I mean, this whole absolute fiasco, where it's like, what in the world is going on? And I have heard sermon after sermon after sermon preached on what exactly was going through Joseph's mind, and why he made his brothers go through all of these things, which is interesting, because that's not actually in the Bible, isn't it? We love to speculate, don't we? Especially when that speculation proves our point. But here's the thing. I will tell you this, and I feel really, really good standing on this doctrine. Joseph walked with God, right? We are told all throughout this story that God was with Joseph. Joseph lived the sovereign life, which means Joseph trusted in every single step of God's plan. So a lot of times the question gets asked, well, why did Joseph, you know, send his brothers through all of this stuff? Why did, why did Joseph, you know, do this? I think the easy answer is because that's what God told him to do. Why God told him to do that, I don't know. That's between Joseph and his brothers and God. But I think God told him, this is how you restore your brothers. This is how you restore this relationship with your brothers. And Joseph trusted God's plan. So it probably looked a little wonky, right? It looks wonky to us. But Joseph forgave his brothers. Here's the story. It says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? 
As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. We come back to our foundation again and again and again. Joseph refusing to take control, constantly giving that control to God. So you have to believe that every step of this process was ordered and ordained by God, and Joseph was just following orders. Church, Christianity is really easy. You know, we've, we've got these charismatic and Pentecostal churches out here that, you know, we say, not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then we go and do things man's way. Right? But Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he tells his disciples he did that for a very specific reason. Because he told them, if I do not go, then the helper can't come. If Jesus doesn't ascend, the Holy Spirit can't come. But Jesus did ascend. Which means the Holy Spirit did come. Now we all who believe in Jesus Christ, in fact, you cannot believe in Jesus Christ if you don't have the Holy Spirit working in you. You can't. The Bible says it's impossible. Anybody who believes in Jesus Christ, who is saved by Jesus Christ, has the Holy Spirit revealing that to them. We have God himself, through the Holy Spirit, living inside of us. The, the New Testament calls it being baptized in the Holy Spirit, right? It's like water baptism. When, you, when you're baptized in water, you go all in, right? You, we believe in full submersion baptism here, not the sprinkling kind, because that's how Jesus was baptized. But they dunk them, right? And that water goes everywhere. When you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, guess where that Holy Spirit goes? Everywhere. And it's like getting baptized with your mouth open. And in this baptism when you're underwater, don't do this in real baptism because it won't end well. Breathe it in. Open your mouth and breathe it in. You see why I say don't do that with real baptism? Because that would be bad to breathe that in. But you let that Holy Spirit cover you inside. You let that Holy Spirit cover you outside. But ladies and gentlemen, when the Holy Spirit has filled you, when the Holy Spirit has covered you, don't revert back to doing things man's way. That's how the church today acts. But part of this sovereign life is that we trust that we have the Holy Spirit. He's going to give us each step of the way. He's going to tell us what to do. Guys, do you think, here's a question, do you think that you want God's will to be done more than God wants his will to be done? Not a chance, right? I can tell you for a fact, when God's told me to do certain things, nope. He definitely wants that more than me, because I don't want to do that. But here's the thing. If God wants his will to be done more than I do, he's going to tell me how to do it, right? He's going to give me the strength to do it. He's not going to say, Jeremy, I want you to start the Gospel House Church, and then pull his spirit away from me. Hup, you're on your own now. Good luck. He's not going to do that. He's going to tell you what to do, and he's going to give you the strength to finish the job. Because that's how God's sovereignty works. Do you see how we can rest in this? 
sovereignty is absolutely freeing. We don't sit in God's throne. We give him complete control. And then we just follow orders. We just go when he says go. We stay when he says stay. We pray when he says pray. And we follow him. This frees us to forgive. Can you imagine being in this situation if you're Joseph? Coming face to face with your brothers who sold you into slavery? And Joseph doesn't once try to take revenge. He doesn't once say an, an ill word towards them, look at them funny. I, mean, I don't know, maybe he looked at them funny. The Bible doesn't tell us. So the Bible doesn't say he did, so I'm going to assume he didn't. But he completely forgives them. Who do you need to forgive? Right? Because there's always somebody. We humans are creatures of offense, aren't we? It's so easy to take offense. Lots of times we, I take offense at conversations that never actually happened, but that happened in my mind, right? So-and-so didn't talk to me, so I'm assuming they're mad at me. They probably think this and this and this, right? And then I get super offended. Trusting in God's sovereignty frees us to forgive. It frees us to trust him when we're going through stuff. It frees us to trust him when we're up at the top. Because lots of times when we're up at the top, that's when it's real easy to assume that, oh, this is the Jeremy show, right? I don't want the Jeremy show when I'm down at the bottom, but when it's top of the mountain, then it's the Jeremy show. Wow, look at what I've made, right? But sovereignty frees us to trust him at the bottom. It frees us to trust him at the top. It frees us to trust his timing when things don't happen as quickly as we want them to. It frees us to rest in God's perfect plan. It frees us to work hard for his kingdom come on this earth. It frees us to walk in obedience to him. But that peace, that hope, that trust, that assurance, it only comes when we see the sovereign point. Because if we miss the point, if we miss the purpose of God's sovereignty, we will be robbed of all of that joy, all of that hope, all of that assurance. It only comes when our anchor's in the right spot. This is going to sound crazy, but we miss the point of sovereignty in the story of Joseph a lot. Because in the story of Joseph, Joseph goes through the ringer, right? He goes through every kind of storm imaginable. But here's the thing. None of it is for Joseph. All of Joseph's struggles, all of Joseph's trials, you know, the, the worldly, when we miss the sovereign point, the worldly perspective is, well, that was to get Joseph in the right place so Joseph could become successful. False. That's not what this story actually teaches. I referenced this fact a couple of weeks ago, but now it's time to really dig into it. Joseph's suffering, every trial, every storm, 
was not to put him in the place where he could be successful in Egypt. If that's the moral of your story, when you read the story of Joseph, you're missing the sovereign point. Because fact of the matter is, the story of Joseph is all about his brother Judah. All of it is about his brother Judah. Because before Israel dies, he calls all of his children to him. And he gives each child a prophetic word. This would be, this would be the tribes. Each of these children rises up to be a tribe in Israel. And he gives each of these children, each of these tribes, a prophetic word. And here is the prophetic word that Israel gives to Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, he, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. Every single Bible scholar even those who aren't Bible scholars, will tell you that this is one of the first messianic prophecies in the Bible. This Genesis 49, 8-11. A requirement of the Jewish Messiah. This means before you can even take a step into fulfilling even any of the other requirements. You know, there, are, there were of the Jews... They, they believe, that I can't even remember the exact number, it's like 370 or something like that, requirements of the Messiah. These are, these are 370 messianic prophecies in the Bible that had to be fulfilled. And y'all, if Jesus Christ missed one of them, he is not the Messiah and you are still in your sins. Jesus Christ fulfilled them all. But it starts with this. The Messiah must be from the tribe of Judah. That has to be his lineage. If it doesn't start there, you cannot take a step forward. Judah must survive this ordeal. So like we said, if Joseph doesn't get sold into slavery, if he doesn't get arrested for a crime that he doesn't commit, if he isn't forgotten by the chief cupbearer, if he doesn't later get remembered, if he doesn't tell Pharaoh about the coming famine, doesn't get put in charge to save all of the people of Egypt and all the surrounding areas, including Israel and all of his sons, then the line of Judah is broken and there can be no Messiah. And if there is no Messiah, then you and I are still dead in our sins. Now here's the funny thing about Judah. You know, we hear about this, right? Joseph goes through all the junk, and it's all for Judah. Judah wasn't a good person, y'all. Judah was no knight in shining armor. 
In fact, if we go back to the very beginning, in week one, we read this, Genesis 37. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up the blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and now and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. That's rough. Judah's the one responsible for selling Joseph into slavery. Not a good person. And unfortunately, from there, it doesn't get a whole lot better. Because in the next chapter, Judah gets his own chapter in the Bible. Whole chapter, chapter 38, Genesis 38. It's all about Judah. Really good story. Really, really good story. Those of you who like like the trashy romance novels, you like to read those, uh, I highly suggest you check out Genesis 38 because uh, it puts daytime television to shame. Just to give you a quick recap, Judah makes a promise to his daughter-in-law. Her name is Tamar. And he makes this promise to her. See, Tamar marries Judah's oldest son. His oldest son is an evil man, and he dies. So, in Jewish culture, because he didn't have an heir, his next in line is supposed to marry Tamar, and then the first child from that relationship carries on the name of his brother. Well, that brother didn't like the idea that this kid wasn't going to be his own, so he did bad stuff, and he gets killed. So Judah has another son who's significantly younger, so he tells Tamar, all right, you go away for a little while, wait for this one to get older. When he gets of age, you can marry him, but he forgets. And that's an air quote, forgets, because he actually thought Tamar was cursed, and if he let her marry his youngest son, that he would die too. So Tamar does what any intelligent, thought-forward woman does. She dresses up as a temple prostitute and lures Judah in to sleep with her and gets pregnant. They go on the Jerry Springer show. Jerry Springer comes out and says, Judah is the father. And the crowd goes wild and everybody starts running around the stage. You know, you guys have all seen Jerry Springer, right? Whoa. All of this is what's going on while Joseph is sold into slavery. While Joseph is going through the ringer, the knight in shining armor whom he is saving is doing this junk. That sits real well. And that's God's plan? Oh, it's better than that. Because we flip a few thousand years later to the very beginning of the book of Matthew, and it tells us this. The record of, geneal of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. There he is. Oh, wait, there's more. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. You skip a few verses. And finally get to, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. See, it's not just that Judah was in line, that this was the line of Judah. Did you know that there's only, I think it's three, three women named in the lineage of Jesus Christ? Because in Judaism, nobody actually cared who the women were. 
They did, sorry, ladies. That's, they didn't. They care, if the father's line, was the, what, that was what mattered, especially in a, in a kingly lineage. And so they named the fathers. But in this genealogy, three women are named. All three of them, reputations were soiled. People, not queens, not, not worldly success stories. Tamar, who tricked Judah into sleeping with his daughter-in-law. It's not just that it happened, y'all. It's that in Jesus' lineage, you know, lineages were like resumes for people, especially for kings. You only put the best of the best. In fact, if there was a black sheep in your family, you stuffed that thing so far down into the family tree, and hopefully nobody looks under that bush, right? Not God. God brings it to the front. He calls Tamar and says, front and center. Everybody else would be embarrassed of your story, but you are my daughter, and this is the line that I choose. Over and over again, the Messiah chooses the broken, the rejected, the forgotten, and those are the people whom he fills his family tree with. Because those are the people who trust in his sovereignty. If God can redeem my jacked up situation, he can redeem anything. So let's connect the dots. You are telling me that Joseph is the one. Joseph is the one who has to suffer all of this. And in God's great plan, it's all for someone else. And what a someone else, right? Quite the scumbag, if we're being honest. Hmm. Someone suffering absolutely atrocious things, all according to God's plan, so that a sinner can be raised up and restored. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because that is the gospel. And that is the entire point of God's sovereignty. The gospel, Jesus Christ, you and me, and God's perfect plan, connecting all of the dots that we could never connect on our own, and making a way for us to be saved. I'm sure every single one of us could go through our past, our salvation story. And if we actually knew all of the dots that had to connect to get us to that moment of salvation, if we could look back and see, and y'all, someday we will look back and see. There's this really great book. I know the, the author of it is, has been kind of shamed and is no longer a decent person, but, um, but it's, it's by Ravi Zacharias, and it's called The Grand Weaver, and th the image of it is unbelievable. He talks about, you know, in India, they make these uh, saris, series, whatever they are, saris, um, for these women on their weddings, and they're absolutely gorgeous. I mean, like, like, just phenomenal, like you can't even fathom, but what happens is when in these, in these factories where they're making these things, there's these workers on the ground. Lots of times it's families that do this. 
So there are these children on the ground, sons on the ground, and their father is standing up on the top. And the father is directing, and he said, if you go into these things, you just see these people running to and fro with these strings and strands, and they're flying everywhere, and it's chaotic, and it's messy, and it's unbelievable. And there's absolutely no way these kids on the floor have any idea what they're doing. But the father who is above it all, who can see how everything is coming together, who can see the perfect plan weaving in and out and up and down and around is directing all of the chaos. And when the chaos ends, it is one of the most coveted, most beautiful pieces of fabric in that culture. God is doing the same with yours and my lives. We're strands in this tapestry that he's weaving and he's weaving us in and out and around, and it feels chaotic, and it hurts, and it's a mess. But the grand weaver sees it all, and he is making something beautiful. He loves you so much that all of this, Joseph, Jesus, all of it was for you, was for me. He has worked all of this together for our good, for those who believe in him, who trust in him. But like Joseph, your part in God's sovereign plan will cost you everything. Look at your Savior. It cost Jesus everything to walk out God's perfect plan. And he did so without one time complaining. So this morning we're going to take communion together. If you didn't get a communion wafer, Jana, can you grab? Is there anybody who needs a, a cup? This morning, there we go, <coughs> we remember exactly how perfect God's plan was. And had we been in that moment, like Jesus' disciples, it's interesting because after Jesus is crucified, all of his disciples do what? They rejoice because they understood the moment completely. They ran and hid, Right? ran for their lives, scattered, because they didn't understand what God was doing. But we look back now and rem we remember that even in the worst moment in human history, God had a plan and a purpose. And that purpose was for our salvation. So we're going to read from the communion account as recorded in Matthew 26 says this, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Church, take and eat the bread which represents the body of Christ.
And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Church, the juice which represents the blood of Christ. Church, the world needs us to walk in God's sovereignty, to walk in his perfect plan. And you cannot do that in your own strength. You can't do it in your own power. You can't do it in your own wisdom. You cannot possibly know God's plan without the Holy Spirit revealing it to you. You cannot possibly have the strength to walk out God's plan perfectly in your own strength. The world does not need to see a church that is just as out of control as the world is right now, that is reeling just as much as the world is right now. The church needs to be, the world needs to see from the church people who completely trust that God's got this. And Jesus Christ showed us through his death and resurrection that he once and for all has got this. It's absolutely crazy to think that God could work together the horrific events of Joseph's life together for the good of an entire nation. But it's even crazier to think that God could work all of the events of Jesus' life together for the good of all mankind in the most surprising Savior the world has ever seen. And it all started in a humble manger in Bethlehem. How's that for a lead into Christmas? Only in God's sovereignty. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you were pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.